here at the Trinity Church, we primarily like to go through books of the Bible. We've been in the book of Nehemiah uh, for a few months now, and today we're in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 13 through 18. So if you have your Bibles, uh, open up uh, to Nehemiah chapter 8, or turn your Bibles on. And as you're turning to Nehemiah 8, I want to ask this question. If any of you have ever had this moment that I'm about to describe happen before in your life. Let me adjust my mic real quick. Sorry. Okay. Say, for instance, you're in the kitchen, you're making dinner, you're like, oh, I need a can of black beans. There's no black beans up here. I need to go to the basement where they have more stores. So you go to the basement, and you enter into that storage room, and uh, with the moments prior, you understood why you were there, and then you enter into that room, and you ask uh, life's most important philosophical question <laughs> that you could ever ask. Why am I here? Right? You all finished it before I even got there, right? The most important question you have, why am I here? I, I, I ended up here. Why do I exist? Why am I breathing air in this storage closet right now? And the reason I share that is it's amazing how quick we are to forget things, right? It's amazing how not only quick we are to forget kind of marginal, minor things, or like a can of black beans for dinner or whatever, whatever you get in a storage closet. Um, but it's also kind of sad how quick we are to forget yeah. major, fundamental, core realities about who we are and about who God is and all that is ours because of what Jesus has done for us. And this is kind of the story of the people of God, if you read uh, the scriptures, is that we are shockingly quick to forget who our God is. And we constantly need to remind our souls that we are children of God, that we've been chosen, we aren't forsaken, that we have eternity in our future, that God hasn't abandoned us, but he is with us by his presence. So the danger of forgetting God is that forgetting God inevitably eventually leads to kind of forsaking God, and not just forsaking God, but then following other gods. That's the trajectory we see in the Old Covenant scriptures, primarily why the people of God were exiled in the first place, is they just began to forget God. He was, he was out of sight out of mind, and eventually out of our life. And we're all worshipers 24-7, so we're going to go worship the gods of the culture around us and not the true living God. And so in our text today, the people are returning to God. That's what Nehemiah is all about, is the restoration of fellowship with God's people out of exile, back to dwelling in God's midst in his city in Jerusalem. So the flip side of forgetting God, leading to eventually forsaking God, is this is remembering God inevitably leads to rejoicing in God, right? I don't know if you heard my section over here, we'll get a little rowdy in worship. <laughs> Why is that? Because we're remembering what God has done for us in worship. That's what praise is. We're not just singing songs because that's what Christians do. No, praise in and of itself is recalling, remembering. We have a king. His name is Jesus. Our greatest enemies are vanquished foes. He's, he's triumphed over our sin. He's triumphed over death. He's triumphed over the grave. Like, sing a hallelujah to the Lord, right? So, remembering. That's what praise is. We're remembering. We're singing to our souls. Remember. And that inevitably, inevitably, we just, I gotta, I'm preaching like three times to be up here. Inevitably, it leads to rejoicing in God, which leads to remaining in Him. Because you and I, you and I, We'll never leave the place of our greatest joy. We'll stay put. We won't go. So remembering leads to rejoicing, which leads to remaining. So the title of my sermon is The Power of Remembrance. 
And so that was my introduction to say that in Nehemiah 8, 13 through 18, what we see today is God's people remembering the goodness and the steadfast love of their God by celebrating the Feast of Booths, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, um, some of you, maybe there's one person here who's waited their entire Christian journey to hear a sermon on the Feast of Tabernacles. <laughs> and you're just like, Lord, when is this moment going to come? Today's your life. <laughs> <laughs> That's a first for some of you today. It's a first for me here to serve on the Feast of Booths. That's what we'll be diving into uh, this morning. So we're going to go verse by verse. Uh, I'm going to start off with prayer, and then we'll go verse by verse and jump on in. All right, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We bless your name. We sing hallelujah. Uh, we have a king. He's reigning over our circumstances. He's reigning over our regrets. He's reigning over our future. His name is Jesus. He's a kind king. He's a compassionate king. He's a king who took on flesh and dwelt among us. Why? Because he wanted to be where we were. He wanted to dwell in our presence. Because the, the, the God of the scriptures, this king, doesn't just love us. He likes us. He delights in us. He sings songs of, of deliverance and, and joy and affection over his people. That's the king. Who, yes, he reigns in omnipotence and power, and yes, he draws near and comes close and brings us close to his heart and to his presence. So that's who we worship today, God. We give you all praise and glory and honor. And Lord, we just pray to that you, Holy Spirit, by grace, we can have your word with our hearts and with your word this morning, that Jesus, you would increase and magnify our lives. And that I pray for that I would increase in you for God. In your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, verse 13. We're going to read verse 13. I'm going to share some stuff, and that's how we're going to, we're going to go through this verse by verse. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. Let's stop there. So it begs the question, if there's a second day in our text, what was the first day? And again, it's been two weeks since we've been in here, so I'll do a quick recap. So, on the first day, this is what happened. Uh, Nehemiah and God's people miraculously, with the help of God, in 52 days, they finished rebuilding the walls around the city. The city was physically restored, and now we see a pivot and a shift in Nehemiah to the spiritual restoration of God with his people. So immediately upon the wall being finished, they have like a Holy Ghost tent revival meeting, okay? So outside the water gate, they build this massive stage, kind of like this. And uh, uh, if you remember the, the sermons from a few weeks ago, Ezra, the priest and scribe, is up there with like an entourage. And then Levites are in the midst of 30 to 50,000 men, women, and children. Okay? And what Ezra is doing for roughly seven hours on the first day is he's reading from the Torah. He's reading from the first, by the highlight reel of the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis to Deuteronomy. And as he reads God's law, because God's law is a mirror of truth. Of the glory of God. And what happens is conviction of the Holy Spirit rests over all the people. And somebody tell me what happens. What's the response? Wailing. Crying, wailing, weeping. Yeah, they start weeping and mourning. You guys are good listening. You guys are paying attention. <laughs> so they start crying and mourning and, and grieving their sins. They realize our ancestors have forgotten God. And then they've forgotten God, and so therefore they went and followed other pagan gods. And that's why the whole exile happened. But God, in his steadfast love and grace, has brought us back that even though our ancestors and us chased after other gods and forsook our covenant with God, God didn't forsake us. God didn't forget us. God keeps his covenant. 
with this people. He said, you are my people. And although the people said, you are my God, even though they said, you're, you're not our God anymore, uh, Baal is our God, Molech is our God, God said, no, you're still my people, and I'm going to bring you home. And he brought them home. So they're, they're just devastated. And hopefully some of you have, have had the Holy Spirit come and do this, right? And, we, and, and, and in that moment, it's bringing true, genuine contrition and repentance from God when we finally see the sins of what it really is, okay? So it doesn't stop there. Something fascinating happens. What's the response of Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites to the people? We can well help me out. Don't cry. Don't cry. And then what else? Rejoice. This day is holy to the Lord. Right? Instead, you would think like Nehemiah, some of us are really self-righteous, right? And people are crying. Like, yeah, you better cry. You stay there. Y'all are a bunch of sinners. Like, let's retry this case, right? You stay, you stay there. You weep as long as you can. I want you. No, no, that's not. Nehemiah, they're kind of, they're kind of like, well, well, that's not the response you should have. This isn't a retrial for your sins. This is a reunion. It's a reunion. Let's drink some wine. They, they command them to drink wine. They command them to eat. This is all in your Bibles. Go read the rest of the <laughs> They command them to eat like fillets, like the finest of meats. You don't eat that because this isn't a retrial of your sins. This is a reunion. God the Father bringing you back home to his heart. So this is a moment of rejoicing. God's not saying, holding your face in your in your sin anymore. He's saying, come home to my heart my presence. And Jake preached a phenomenal sermon three weeks ago on this text, and he concluded with Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. Right? The response of the father. This, this here, Nehemiah 8, this is Luke 15. Right? This is a moment of great rejoicing when the prodigal son has returned, and he's expecting a scowl from his father. Instead, he gets a smile. He's expecting fury to fall. And instead, he gets a feast and a fresh start. Yeah. And so the people of God, they're commanded, hey, hey, God's fury is, is, is up. He's, 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 he's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. This isn't a retrial. This is a reunion. And instead of fury, they got a feast and a fresh start. And that rocked their, their world. And so they say, okay, that was, so that was my day one recap. All right? So that's day one. You might be asking, okay, why did all the men want to regather to hear Ezra preach from the scriptures again for seven hours? Because they encountered the grace of God. Right? That was the kind of God they encountered. So they ran it back. They're like, I want to hear more about this God of all grace and this God of love. And so all the men gather where we're at as they run it back. It's day two, now the second day. And all the men are there listening again to Ezra continue to read from the scriptures. You might be asking, why was it just the men of the household? Well, if you uh, study this text, a lot of biblical scholars believe that the, uh, all the kids' ministry workers who were working seven hours on day one, they quit after that. <laughs> <laughs> so there weren't any kids' ministry volunteers. That's it. If you don't know how to preach. Anyways. <laughs> that was, so yeah, they don't have kids' ministry volunteers. Anyway, so, for most likely what they believe is for purely practical reasons. If you have a family with small kids, you know that that totally makes sense. So the men ran it back, and uh, the kids got to have good preschool, okay? And so the men are there, they're having a men's Bible study with Ezra for a long time, and all of a sudden, what we see is this is what happens next, verses 14 through 15. And they found it, I love that, they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. I love this verbiage here. Notice it doesn't say, oh, they just, they just heard Ezra say it. They read it. It was written. It says, no, they found something. 
Like, I think the impression we get here is like a sense of excitement. Like, when you got lost your keys for like a day, and all of a sudden you find that your kid hit them like underneath the couch, you know? They don't have that moment. Anyways, it's like that sense of excitement of rediscovering something that's forgotten and has been neglected and yet critically important for your life. So, begs the question what did they find that was so important? And what they found is that in Torah, God's law, God commanding these people to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And you might be asking, what is the Feast of Booths? And I'm glad you asked that. It's a great question. Here's a brief overview of the Feast of Booths. This is not your seminary level. Okay, so like, I can point you to some good resources. I'm going to give you the cliff notes, and then if you want further study, I'll point you some great resources. But let me give you a brief overview of what the Feast of Booths was all about. The Feast of Booths was one of three major pilgrimage feasts that the Old Covenant people of God were commanded to observe in and around Jerusalem. So pilgrimage, meaning that wherever you lived, in and around Jerusalem, you had to travel. You had to make some plans to travel to Jerusalem. And the three feasts, those pilgrimage feasts that God commanded his people to observe in Jerusalem were Pentecost was the first one, the second one was Passover, and the last one was the Feast of Booths and Tabernacles. And the timing of the Feast of Booths is where we find ourselves in our text. It was in the fall. It was our October. Um, and it was celebrated right after the final ingathering of that year's harvest. Remember that detail. The final ingathering of that year's harvest. After that, right around mid-October is when they would celebrate that. And there was a, a liturgy in order of the Feast of Booths. So I'll give you some of the details of the Feast of Booths. One, the first kind of highlight reel, if you know anything about the Feast of Booths, key important detail, is that you had to camp out for seven days in and around Jerusalem. You could like camp out and live inside the city, like on your roof or in the backyard. If you're outside the city, you know, outside the city. But here's the deal. You couldn't camp out in like your $2,000 REI 10-person tent with Wi-Fi and an espresso maker. You know, like that's not, that's not how they camped out. They had to camp out by like making their own like Bear grill survival shelter from wood they got from the forest, okay? So I don't, I don't know about you, but like for me and my kids observing this, I'd be like, hey, sorry kids, I went to seminary. I don't know anything about construction. Like, here's a pile of sticks. <laughs> We're gonna live. Yeah, I know Jimmy's dad. He's got subcontractors over there. They're tiling out his tent. But like for us, like, just I'll roll you in here. All right. That would have been me. I imagine the guys are taking this very, very seriously. Uh, so, um, why were they commanded to live in booths in, in temporary outdoor shelters? This was to commemorate, to remember how God provided shelter, food, sustenance, and provision for their ancestors in the wilderness. Remember that story in Exodus, he delivers his people out of slavery and bondage to Egypt, takes them through the wilderness en route to the promised land. And in that wilderness journey, God provided water from the rock, manna from heaven, and shelter. Over this. The second key detail, that's the first detail. The second key detail is that every day of the festival, the people were required to bring temple offerings to God from their harvest. So every day you would come, not empty-handed to God, but every day there were specific offerings that you were to bring of your harvest to the Lord. And the third thing I want to highlight is that every day not, wasn't, not only was it you know, uh, kind of your tithes and offerings of, of, of your harvest, but also there was this water ritual that was performed every seven days during the Feast of Booths. And what would happen would be this, is the Pool of Siloam sits like on the southeast quadrant of Jerusalem. And water would be drawn from the pool of Siloam and would, 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 be, would be kind of like a parade, paraded up to the temple. 
And then that water for seven days will be poured out on the temple altar as an offering to God, saying, God, you provided, this is you provided water from the rock, you provided uh, <coughs> water for our crops this year, so we're taking this and we're pouring it back to you as an offering of thank you to you. And what's interesting is on the eighth day, the solemn day, they did not do that anymore to symbolize that, hey, on the eighth day, we're resting in God's provision. It is finished. He has provided. That's kind of the highlight really, of the Feast of Jesus. I hope that makes sense. And uh, a important thing I want to highlight is that upon hearing all these details in God's law, the people of God who heard this on day two, they didn't neglect this command as like silly or irrelevant. They didn't like, hey, let's get into the, the Hebrew and see like how we can wiggle our way out of camping out in the woods for seven days. They didn't do that. What we see, what we'll see soon, is they immediately obeyed God's word. They immediately obeyed this and put this in to practice. And so what I want to highlight just real quick is that sometimes, the reason I share this is because I struggled with this, especially in seminary, and me being like, I just love theology, and I'm, that's kind of my bent, and I just love studying theology, is oftentimes we can have a faulty understanding of thinking that just reading God's word is synonymous with obeying God's word. Right? Like, oh, I read God's word today. Check it off the list, and now I can just go and live like a naturalist the rest of my days. Thank you, Jesus. I'm such a good Christian. I know so much about the Bible, right? What's interesting here is that there came a time where Ezra stopped preaching God's law. There came a time where they rolled up in the scroll. And there came a time where they put into practice that which they read and immediately obeyed God. Okay, and we can't confuse those two things. Jesus says, says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Yes, it's critically important. We honor the scriptures. Right, our final authority, they're sufficient for all of life and, and practice. But, but God also saying the scriptures are for your obedience, for your blessing and being a blessing to the others. So they immediately go do that in verses 16 through 18. Look at your Bible. Verses 16 through 18. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square of the water gate, and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who have returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So I love the picture we get. If you were to take a satellite image in 445 BC of the city of Jerusalem at this moment, you would see like just uh, tents and tabernacles all over the city, inside the city, outside the city. You would see like an anthill, just a flurry of activity, uh, kids kind of running everywhere to and from the court, people hugging, people singing, people worshiping God. It was just amazing. Amazing, And I love the fact that God commanded this. The people obeyed it. And it says in verse 17, there was very great rejoicing. We have to realize on the other side of obeying God's commands is very great rejoicing. His commands are for our good. They are not burdensome, the scriptures say. And so there was very great rejoicing to the extent, given the participation, the amount of people participating in the Feast of Ruth, and the elation, how they participate with very great rejoicing. It says all the all the way back to Joshua, there was not a feast of booze like the one in 445 BC. 
to the extent like, hey, they're selling t-shirts, like Feast of Booze 445 BC, like, hey, were you there that year? That was crazy, you won't believe what happened. I'm like, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Like that, like that, what I imagine, if I place myself in the text, is, is like, you know, I think it was 2018 when the Capitals won the Stanley Cup. I was outside with like hundreds of thousands of people in the city who were all representing the same team, cheering for the same victory. And that moment is Mark. I was like, that, that's Mark. I was like, that's, well, I came back from that night. And when they won the Stanley Cup, game five, and I was downtown celebrating with all of DC. Huge hockey fan. I go back to my wife and, and she goes, how was it? And I go, I'm not going to say it was the greatest day of my life. Because that was Jesus and Mary and you, but it was really close. <laughs> so yeah. And so that's the sense I get. Like, man, 445 BC, never since the days of Joshua hasn't been celebrated like that. And uh, I just love that picture. And so you might be asking, okay, that's kind of a recap of the text. Okay, that's great for the old covenant people of God. What does this have to do with my walk with Jesus today? And so three points of application before we, we close. The three things I want to hone in on in regards to the importance and the power of remembrance, the first point is this. One, remembrance, the act of recalling the great deeds of God. Remembrance is intentional, not accidental. I'm going to explain what that means. The first thing that kind of stuck out to me as I was studying this text to preach was the amount of effort that had to go in for the people of God to celebrate this. Like every year on their calendar, this is one of three like, not vacations, but travel. Like, on their calendar for seven days, they have to prepare. So there's preparation. There's stuff on the calendar. There's packing, right? There's, there's the cost of time. Like, seven days in Jerusalem means seven days not working. Seven days not at home, right? Not at home with a roof over my head that actually has shingles and you know, whatever, right? Like, so seven days. And then also money. Like, I have to go and I'm giving offerings. So there's a cost. There's a sacrifice. There's an intentionality to the act of... Remembrance. And so not only do you have to book all that, but once you get to Jerusalem, you can't book your Airbnb. You actually have to build your own Airbnb out of it, like Myrtle and Olive and all that stuff. And I don't know how you discern that, but anyways, they knew how to. All right. So all that, all that to say is that the act of remembrance is not something that happens by accident in our lives. It's not passive. It's active. It's stated differently. Um, let me say this. We, as the people of God, have to understand that the odds are stacked against us for following hard after God. The odds are completely stacked against us as long as you're on the side of the glory. The world, the flesh, and the devil is a current that is always doing its best to take our gaze off of God, take a gaze off of glory, take a gaze off of our chief end, our purpose of knowing God and making him known, and to go with the flow away from God, which is away from God. But anyone here uh, love to go to the beach and swim in the ocean, right? All of you hopefully love that. If you've been to the beach, one of the funniest things ever is going and the waves are crazy. And uh, again, we go going to, the, going to the Outer Banks, the small sliver of island off of uh, the coast of North Carolina. And there are some years where the current, I think it's the, uh, the rip current takes you out, but I don't know if you've been in the playing in the waves before where the water just takes you sideways, like at a million miles an hour, right? You get in, all of a sudden, it's like an escalator. Whoop, you're like, whoa. And so the reason I share that is, like, when you're, when you're in the way that you're playing, and you're not intentional, if there's not an effort, you're in Florida in, like, three hours. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But all of a sudden, you look, up, you look up, and you're like, I don't even know where my, I'm, I'm going to drift that sea. Like, the island ended, right? Like, you know, what I'm getting at is you have to consistently say, that's where my parents 
umbrella is, okay, and I need to do this or get out and continue to do that. Otherwise, I'm, I'm miles and hours, I'm miles away. And it's the same for our walk with Jesus. There's, there's discipline, there's effort involved. And what's fascinating is studying the, the various feasts this week in the Old Covenant is how much God commanded his people to consistently remember him and not forget him. And their Lord who redeemed them from slavery could do that because he was Lord over their calling. Right? Like, like, I redeemed you out of slavery. I am your Lord. Your time, your calendar belongs to me. So I'm telling you, every fall, observe this festival. It's for your good. It's for your good, but, but it's also like for your obedience. Like you need to come and remember, lest your heart drifts, lest you, lest you wander. So application for us today, my question to us would be this, on this first point would be, is God on our calendar? Is God on our calendar? The Feast of Booths had to be on people's calendar for them to remember it, right? Is God on our calendar? Right? Daily, weekly, and yearly, annually. And so daily, in our walk with the Lord, something that's helped me out is getting my sacred time with Jesus on my calendar. And here's why that's helpful to me. Is if you are on my calendar, I will show up like five minutes early to that meeting. Because that would be rude of me to blow you off. Right? You would, you would be like, I don't know what would happen. That wouldn't be good. All right? Pray. But that would be rude. If Jesus, what helps me wake up, you know, a little bit earlier than everyone else so I can get that time with Jesus is realizing that the most important person I can meet with is Jesus. I'm not waking up to master spiritual disciplines. I'm waking up to fellowship with the living God. And he's waiting for me. And I don't want to blow him up. So if he's there, that's an appointment, right? And not in a legalistic way, but in a way that helps me say, hey, this is important to me. Jesus is on my calendar. I, this, is, this matters to me, right? And that's what tithing is. Tithing is your first and your best. And often what happens in the business of our life is we give God our last and our worst. And so that instead of Jesus getting the first thing in the morning, that chunk of time, usually he gets kind of the leftovers, the, the amen before you hit the pillow, right? I've been there, right? We've all been there. And so one daily, what would it look like to get a rhythm, maybe just 15 minutes of sacred time in the morning or sacred time at lunch, sacred time in the evening? It doesn't just have to be like, you know, in the morning. What would it look like to get Jesus daily on your calendar and then weekly? Put community group on your calendar. Join a group. Get involved. Well, I'm saying join a group. We have two more weeks, and then we're taking a break in the summer. But if you're not part of a group, come New Year. Come join a community group. And come here on Sunday morning. Get Sunday service on your calendar. Because here's, here's, what, here's what I'm getting at. Remembrance is a group project. Recalling the great deeds of God is a group project. It's not something you can do in isolation. This is the trend that we see. And the scriptures say, do not give up the habit of meeting together. And as you meet together, encourage one another daily. So that as someone who's been redeemed and had their life changed by God in powerful ways, and they're shouting out, hallelujah, that stirs my faith. And saying, that should be my response, right? Like it's a group project. All of us, the redeemed of God, saying, God has brought us together. That's why we're here. It's because of what he's done. It's a group project. So get that on your calendar. And then a quick plug again, not in a way that's judgmental uh, or, or harsh. But again, like, if, if you're meeting with God today and not attending church, let's do our best to, to be here early and not 10 minutes late, okay? And I know, like, I know what it's like. You sometimes meet God, like, when I used to park the Red Sea to get their three kids to get somewhere on time. So there's a ton of grace for you. But, like, I heard someone say this. Um, talking about being on church sometimes, like, you know, when we go to see, like, our favorite movie in theaters, like Top Gun or, you know, whatever, um, not only do we show up on time, we get there early so we can see all the previews. 
And yet, um, what I want to encourage you into this, again, I don't want to keep judging, I don't want to come across as harsh for those of you who walk in late, I'm not keeping a tally or whatever. But at the end of the day, like, like we are here to worship God. This is about this is a worship event. So I won't call it church. We call it worship God. Because we're here to meet with Him. And so what I want to encourage you in this, invite you into, is get church on your calendar at 9 o'clock. <laughs> so you show up at 9.30. Okay? And that way we can come with our hearts ready to give God the glory and honor that's due His name and understanding that we're going to be a community of grace and so that if we consistently come there's grace for you in that and yet as you can control it, could you could you think about, hey, if this was an appointment that I had someone on my calendar, I would come early enough to do it. And that's why I think it helps us get God on our calendar. And lastly, yearly. What does it look like for you to, maybe you had a crazy God moment where God just radically changed your life. Maybe it was at the day of salvation for you. Maybe it was a day where God delivered you from something and healed you and provided. Get those dates on your calendar. And what would it look like for you and your family to gather your kids and say, today was the day of my salvation, that summer of my senior year, that young life camp. I want to tell you what Jesus has done for me. Okay, so let's get those moments and let's remember our God. And what we see, the second point I want to hone in on, is that remembrance keeps us humble. And staying humble is the most important thing you and I can do when I walk with Jesus because it says God opposes the crowd, but he gives grace to the humble. And the timing of the Feast of Booths was not accidental. It was immediately following the time of greatest abundance for the people of God. It was that final ingathering of the harvest. So to put it in modern day terms, imagine that your salary comes in in the middle of October, all of your money paid in October, essentially. And then on top of that, you go to Costco. And you get, like, Costco supplies for, like, six months. And it's at that very moment where God says, now for seven days, live like you're homeless. At that very moment, live like you're homeless and, and realize how dependent you are upon me for provision. That's what the Feast of Booths is all about, for God's people to remember how the Lord provided for their ancestors in the wilderness supernaturally. Um, and this is what Deuteronomy 8, uh, 11 through 19 says, better than I can say it. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments. And you see that? You see that, 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 that refrain there? Don't forget his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up. You'll get proud. And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good. In the end, that's the heart of God, to do you good. In the end, beware lest you stay in your hearts after that Costco run and after that bonus check, my power and the might of my hand have gotten you this long. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I warn you today that you will perish. There's only death outside of God, not life. Only death. And so what we clearly see here, let me say this, one of the most dangerous things that God can give us is actually prosperity. You read what Jesus has to say about wealth. He slaps a massive blame on wealth. Yes, God is provider. Yes, he's promised to provide for all of our needs, for our assignment on this side of glory. 
We're one of the most dangerous things. Jesus always says, beware of wealth because, because what will happen is you will take, like, like when, when grandma gives you a check, uh, and gives you cash, right? Throw it up. Here's 20 bucks. Nick, I love my grandma always gives me cash. I always have $20 bills. It's amazing. <laughs> Thanks, grandma. Peace. Go to Toys R Us. Get some Legos, right? <laughs> so the text says, beware. Beware. Now that you're in the promised land. Now that you're out of that wilderness. How silly of us, how funny of us, right? We've had those wilderness moments. Anyone here had a wilderness journey? Where you're just like an ugly crying mess all the time? And you're like, God, deliver me. Oh, God. And then God delivers you, and you look back and you're like, yeah, man. And you're like, you got credit for that? How can you take any credit, people of God, that you're in the promised land? You were slaves in Egypt. You can't get a provider yet. I provided for you. I provided for your ancestors. And so the wealthy in Jerusalem, in the promised land, it, watch this, this is the, the whole point of Feast of Booths is the main point, is in the same way that I supernaturally provided for your ancestors in the wilderness is the exact same way I provided for your wealth in this harvest. It came about through the work of my hands. You might think it came about through your paycheck and through your Costco run. No, no, no. It came about through my provision for you. If I don't provide for you, if I don't give you health to work, if I don't make the world work and the seasons come, you don't get any food or water. I provided this for you. We are far more dependent on God than we realize. Far more dependent upon God than we realize. So remembrance keeps us humble. Keeps us humble. And so every day of the feast, as an act of that humble dependence upon God, an act of worship would be God. It was you that provided this, and so now every day we're giving you back a portion of it. We're giving you the first and the best, not the last and the worst. And so the second application for us is yes, I ask the question, is God on our calendar? But hey, it's, it's coming the new year. Is, is God on our budget for 2023? And if he is on our budget, is he first and foremost, or is he last and least? Because according to the scriptures, all of that money in your bank account and that you're budgeting is money that he's graciously given you. And the refrain throughout the scriptures is that we worship God with our wealth. And is he getting the first and the last and the best and the first? And so two simple applications that will help us remember, I think, is this. Is one, I want to share this because this really changed my life uh, in, in kind of a small way, but the small reps add up. Is when you pray over every meal three times a day, don't just say, God bless us, good body, amen, boom, and let's just dive in. Sometimes you're hungry and you're just like, hey, let's, there's, I was, uh, there was a guy at the transit, the army PCS thing, but um, he, I was at his family's dinner table once, and he prayed this. He goes, God, every meal is a miracle. And then he went on this long, like, 15-minute break. <laughs> Unpacking the farmers and the seasons, the harvest, and our health, that like, work, and, and just, like, went on this, like, beautiful, like, I wanted to record this prayer over the meal. And so when we realize that whatever food is on our table is from the Lord, it's supernaturally given, like manna from heaven by God's hand because he loves us. And he good, gives good food to us. Every meal is a miracle. Every meal is a miracle. And then corporately, my encouragement to you would be this, is if you aren't giving of your money as an act of worship to God, I encourage you to start tithing. Uh, we can get all in you know, different arguments about percentages. That's going to be, I believe, situational to other people. Uh, we see that uh, that model in Jesus with the, 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 the lady who just offered like one shekel, and, and, and Jesus says that lady gave more than, than all, all the rich folks that came in and showed the massive check. And so, what I want to ask and encourage you today is as we um, go quiet at the end of the sermon, just ask the Lord, hey Lord, 
Where are you encouraging to give more of your money? The budget award, like where can I start tithing? What percentages would you like to receive? Start giving of my budget in 2023 as an act of worship to you, saying you gave me this money, and as an act of worship and dependence upon you, I'm giving it back to you, which means that it's kind of scary. I'm not going to have it elsewhere, but I'm trusting in you as my provider. So, last point is this one, and I'll slowly conclude with this. Remembrance deepens our joy in God. Remembrance always leads to rejoicing. When we reflect on the love of God shown to us in Jesus Christ, what is that for us? The natural, inevitable outflow of our hearts is praise. So I had this thought of thinking about God commanding his people to go to Jerusalem and celebrate this. I had a thought, what a precious gift God gives to his people. He, God, this is God's idea. It's a precious gift of God. And so, uh, uh, Caleb, can you come up? So from the guitar, we'll just over here uh, as I conclude into communion and, and response. But God's command to continually remember him is not him being uh, nauseating, full of himself kind of thing. No, it's the most loving thing God can do is continually call his people to remember him. If you follow, follow my logic here, if God is the most supremely valuable being on the planet Earth, then there's nowhere else God can point us to to find soul satisfaction. To the extent it would actually be evil of God for him to command us to forget him and neglect him when he knows full well that there is no life and joy and satisfaction apart from knowing him. Like, if I knew that in my house in Springfield was the river of living water, the cure that the world needed, this would cure every illness. This is what humanity needed. And I didn't tell somebody, I didn't say, draw near, remember, drink from this well. I said, yeah, you can, there's a creek behind my house that, that runs off from 495. Feel free to drink from that. You might grow a third year. You know, but like, battery acid, pollution, bacteria in there. Yeah, continue, to just don't, you do you. No, that's, that's sure death. And this is what Jesus says in John 7 about the better waters we have to drink of. And so in John 7, 37 to 39, the context is Jesus is actually in Jerusalem. And why is he in Jerusalem? He's celebrating the Feast of Booths. And he says something profound on the last day. This is what Jesus says. One of my favorite verses in all the scriptures. And on the last day of the feast, the Feast of Booths, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not glorified. On that last day, that final day, that water ritual didn't happen. There was no water poured out because that was a symbolic day of people resting in God's provision for them. It was on that day that Jesus stands up to the crowd that had gathered around him and cries out. And he says, bring to me your thirst. Bring to me that hunger for more. I birthed that in you. And, and when, what Jesus is saying there is that what this all about, yes, God's provision, but he's pointing to me as the son of God, as God's ultimate provision for his people. I'm what this is about. I'm what you need. 
And what he's saying is the symbolism here is this, is just as that rock, you remember the story, was struck in the wilderness. It was kind of pierced in the wilderness. And once it was struck, once it was pierced, there, are, there was a river that flowed out to the thirsty people of God in that wilderness to quench their thirst. And in the same way, it is no accident that when Jesus was pierced on the cross, what, what poured out of Jesus? It was blood, but it was water. It was water. What Jesus is saying here is just like that rock was struck and to, to supernaturally provide the, and quench the thirst of the people of God. I was pierced in the same way. So as my heart was pierced and water flowed flow out of me, in the same way, that was for the sake that now out of your hearts can flow rivers of living water. And that river of living water is the most wild thing on the planet. It's the very presence of God himself, the Holy Spirit. That you and I were created to have that close of fellowship with God. That's how close God wants to get to us. That's what Jesus has made possible. It's you and I being the temples of God, the place where his glory manifests and he fills us. And so now there's a river flowing through us that helps us resist and go march in the face of that current, the world, the flesh, and the devil taking us away from God. That flow sends us to his heart and it's for our joy. So you and I today, I'll conclude with this. You and I were created for rivers of living water. This is what Jesus Christ came to do. You and I were created to swim in that stream. You and I were created to drink deeply of that river, created for joyful communion and fellowship and relationship with the living God. And so what that means to you today is whether you find yourself in the wilderness or whether you find yourself safe and secure in the promised land, your greatest need in life is to drink from these waters. That's your greatest need in life. And so for some of us, maybe it's been a long time since we've taken a drink. And the thing that thought that came to mind is going to be asking, okay, well, as I was preparing this, is how do I drink? How do I get these waters? And what Jesus clearly says, and this is where we partake of experiences, is yes, all of this grace, so there's an experiential aspect of daily drinking of this water. It's simply this. Your thirst needs to change directions. Your thirst and my thirst, our thirst needs to change directions. And so before we take communion and respond to communion, we'll close in prayer. But what I'll encourage you today is you guys can bow your heads and fellowship the Lord in prayer. Is today, uh, let's repent, let's pour out our mug of poisoned water where we've been drinking. And empty that so we can return and say, God, I want to drink of these living waters again of your spirit and of your presence. This is what Jesus Christ came to do and to offer us. So let's go quiet before the Lord, wash our hearts before he came in.
God, we bless your name. You're so worthy of our praise. You're so worthy of our song. You're so worthy to be remembered this morning of what you've done for us, God. You've given us a river to swim in, God. You've given us a river. First Corinthians 12 said, the Holy Spirit of whom we've all been given to drink. Your very presence is our life. Your very presence is our sustenance. In the scripture saying, Psalm 16, 11, in your presence is fullness of joy. And Jesus, you didn't say it was a stream. You didn't say it was a, a small pond. You said it was a, a river. And for those of us, we're, we've got a dehydrated God. We've got a little thirsty today. Would your presence rush in like a roaring, raging river after spring? After the spring rain time, Lord Jesus, would you open up our eyes to your goodness, to your presence, to your beauty, to your majesty? It's all real. You're really present with us. That you can provide for us in our wilderness journey. You're there with us. In the promised land and in the wilderness, you're with us, Lord God. And you've given your son, Jesus, you gave your life. So that we can have this precious promise of your presence flowing out of us, within us and out of us, a continual flow. It never ends. Into eternity there is no end. Oh, Holy Spirit, apply these truths to your people's hearts this morning. Apply these truths, God. And your grace to lead them to, to draw near, God. And as they draw near, would you draw near to them, God? Feel the joy and delight you have in them. They feel your, your nearness, your presence, God. Where they, where they hear the, the still, small whisper of your voice of affection for them. Thank you, Lord. May we leave here today as we take our empty mug to you, worshiping you these last few songs, Lord God. May we drink again richly and remember that your waters are better than anything else that we've been drinking up this week. Thank you for that. Praise the Lord. Amen.